Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. If you like our interviews, be sure to check out our online magazine, The Gradient, which has articles contributed by the sorts of people we interview. I am your guest host, Andre. Uh, I'm just taking over from Daniel for this one episode. And in this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Dr. Christopher Holmgard. Dr. Holmgard is a co-founder and CEO of Model.ai, which is building an AI agent for game development. Before starting the company, Christopher was director of the indie game studio Die Gute Fabrik, the chairman for the Good Factory, and has also done extensive research as an assistant professor in AI and machine learning for games at Northeastern University. He will be giving a talk, AI and the games industry, where are we now and where are we going next week at the upcoming Nordic Game Conference. So yeah, this should be fun. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Christopher. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me, Andre. Uh, excited to be here and, and have a chat about AI and games. Yeah, yeah, and games, two fun topics. Uh, so yeah, to start on that, maybe let's just go into your history or how you got into games and maybe after that also AI, <laughs> the intersecting topics. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Um, well, I, well, there, there are two parts of it, right? Getting into games and getting into games professionally. So, so I guess if we take the first thing, I think when I was, I don't know, four or five, I inherited a, an old Amstrad CPC 464 from, uh, from my older brother, actually. And as soon as I got my hands on that, I was kind of like hooked on video games. So I'm, I'm from a generation where it's all about, you know, getting the tape deck in. Um, some of them were original, some of them might not have been. And you had to get them into, into that, you know, thing that was built together with the keyboard and get the, uh, the counter exactly right and load it up and maybe do some basic commands. So, so that's, that's how I got into video games and, you know, in terms of playing them. And ever since then, they've been a big, big part of my life, I suppose. Um, the first time I really started putting games together myself was, um, I forget the year, but it might have been 96, 98. Um, but there was this tool once upon a time called Click and Play, which was one of these like first, um, you know, visual editors for game making. And so, so I, I, I got my, I nagged my parents into getting that for me, but it was actually quite expensive <laughs> for, for software. <laughs> but anyway, they, they, they got that for me and I just didn't, you know, through that I experienced to be joy of creating interactive experiences and you know for the longest time i um i thought that was interesting i was i was also very interested in, in computer hardware and computer science concepts in general i guess um as a teenager i ran sort of like a little you know basement business of building computers for my friends and selling them to them um i didn't make much money on it it was actually the, the point of it for me was to get to try out the latest hardware all the time and then you know obviously i couldn't afford to buy it so i just sell it on to somebody else um but you know childhood really um influenced by having access to these kind of things and thinking about these things uh, i would bother my my friends with game design all the time and um game design ideas and you know crazy stuff like that and then actually, when, when I had gone through uh, high school, I had this sort of like moment where I, you know, um, youthful folly or I don't know, but I was thinking a lot, a lot about the fact that I spent so much time with all this computer stuff for all these years. And so I thought, no, I should be doing something different now. And I actually went ahead and enrolled um, for an undergraduate degree in general psychology. Oh, um, wow. And, and, and did that. So I, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you, you're uncertain. You know, no matter how hard, hard I tried, I sort of like ended up back in video games in different ways because I quickly found, you know, A, the parts of psychology that really interested me were cognitive psychology and statistics and psychometrics. So, you know, some of the like experimental psychology, um, user experience, those kind of things. Uh, so that's what like immediately led me back into thinking about simulations, how people act in different kinds of simulations, like those sorts of things. Uh, so in many ways, I, you know, I went ahead and did the psychology thing, but I figured out a way of turning it right back into virtual environments and games. And so uh, once I, I had done that for three years and I had my undergraduate degree, I decided to take the consequence. And at that point, at that point um, a master's program had actually opened up in Copenhagen where I lived at the time 
in game design and development. Um, it was called Media Technology and Games at the time. So this is one of the first places in the world where you could do a master's degree in games. And um, so, so I went ahead and switched from um, from psychology to, to game design and development. And then I guess I, I haven't really looked back since. Um, wow, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a fun journey. And it's interesting, yeah, if you talk about your research later, the psychology actually does seem to play into it a lot with personas and you know, psychological responses to environments and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's strongly related and, and happy to get into that in a second, of course. Mm. So yeah, before we jump into AI, maybe jumping to the present, uh, what are your favorite types of video games these days? Do you still find the time to keep up with new new releases? I, I do my best. I can only play, you know, that many at a time. Uh, and these days I'm, I'm kind of like split between some indie games. Um, I got myself a console recently. I actually never really had a, a console for many years. Uh, now I have an, an Xbox, uh, so, I'm, so I'm getting into like a more relaxed style of gaming. But yeah, I, I play video games every week trying to keep up. And, you know, by the nature of our business, I also get to play some customers' video games, which is, which is also kind of fun. Nice. Okay, so we'll definitely get to that. But uh, going back once again, so we talked about your history with video games, and now we can talk about the other topic that will be reoccurring here, which is AI and how you got into it and doing AI research. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, if we take that chronologically as well, um, I guess, you know, there's, there's a certain, I don't know if we're that many, but you'll see in AI, you'll meet a bunch of people who migrated in from psychology or, co or cognitive science. And historically, that has also uh, been the case, right? Even I think Rosenblatt, who did the Perceptron, came, came out of psychology. So there's always been this sort of like interesting relationship. Uh, and, and I think for me, I'm, I'm maybe one, like one of those people. Um, as I mentioned, I was I was quite interested in psychometrics and statistics when I did my psychology degree, and um, it actually ended up being the way that I made my money for a while. Uh, while I was studying games and also afterwards, um, I became an indie game developer and sort of like you know learned by doing. Uh, but at the same time, you you got to make a living. Uh, so I also spent, I guess, around seven years um, doing psychometric modeling uh, for something called Institute for Military Psychology with the Danish Defense. And through that, you know, I just learned a lot of practice around uh, doing statistics and, 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 you know, also modeling different kinds of, um, of psychological data. Uh, I also had a chance to, in, to sort of like interface and interact with some of the people who did training simulations at the defense and spent a lot of time about, you know, um, spent a lot of time thinking uh, about decision-making, modeling, and things like that. So I think in many ways, sort of like over time, um, a lot of my, my work in that space just became oriented towards, listen, how do we actually understand how humans make decisions? How can we make sense of that? Especially if you have sort of like, you know, temporal data with contextual information. So you like, you, 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 like, you know what situation people are in, you know what they did over time. And so the natural thinking, like the natural idea you get from that, of course, is, okay, but we should be able to predict what people would do under certain circumstances with certain likelihoods, right? And that I think sort of like became, you know, eventually that for me turned into into AI. Um, I spent some time doing that and doing game development at the same time. And then eventually a project came up at the IT University of Copenhagen, uh, where I also met some of the other co-founders of Model AI that way. And that project was all about using simulations to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, this was one of the things that we worked with at the Institute for Military Psychology, helping veterans. And they had this interesting research project where they wanted to build a, a game, uh, a treatment game for, uh, for veterans. Um, but they also wanted to do sort of continuous data collection, collect physiological data, and then tie all that together to see if they could make the simulation or the game adapt to the individual person that was using it, just like show them the right things to have the maximum treatment efficacy. And so for me, that, that sort of like became the first place where I started doing, you know, uh, I'd say that's the first time where I started doing actual machine learning and artificial intelligence in the way that most people understand it here, uh, because we were combining like those data sets with the simulation and, and building this adaptive system. Yeah, um, maybe we can uh, yeah. dive into that for a little bit since uh, that was sort of your starting point. So at a high level, maybe, you know, how did that work? Was there a little game that veterans got to play and then based on what we were doing, the game adapted or something like that? 
Pre- precisely like that. Um, so we uh, we started out, um, you know, other people had been doing work in this space for a while um, with what's called exposure therapy. Um, exposure therapy means that you expose people to the things that might trigger anxiety in relation to post-traumatic stress disorder. And so that could be confronting people that, you know, remind them of their memories. So if you've been in, say, in a wartime situation, you had some terrible experiences, then in a mediated way, we can show you things, uh, for instance, using a game simulation that would remind you of, of those experiences, right? But the neat thing about simulations and games is that you can tweak them up and down in intensity, depending on what's a good fit for you. The other side of things is that um, once you come back from, for instance, again, this is like context I did it in, uh, if you come back from, uh, from wartime experiences and you now find yourself in everyday life, there are a lot of things in everyday life that in various ways can remind you of the memories and the traumatic experiences you had during the during during wartime episodes right so that can be everything from um, you know sudden noises you know imagine a car backfiring you know in the street those kind of things and they can send you right back into an anxiety attack or you know a flashback uh, but it can also be sort of like more uh, i guess abstract or distributed um anxiety drivers you, you know a lot of post-traumatic a lot of veterans suffering from ptsd or other people suffering from ptsd find it difficult to even you know maybe go shopping in the supermarket during the peak hours just because it's a lot of social interaction a lot of stuff going on it's, it's an unpredictable situation so so what we did for this game was that we um, we constructed a bunch of everyday situations in the simulator so the game was actually you had to go shopping in a supermarket <laughs> um, but we would i mean it's happened but but you know for good but- reason I think, yeah, people with anxiety can relate, I think, you know. Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah. So, so we used that for exposure therapy and we interviewed, um, and this is maybe the more like classic psychological bit. We spent a bunch of time interviewing, you know, veterans, understanding what situations were the most stressful, which stimuli would be the ones that would typically trigger anxiety or negative emotions. And then we, we built the simulation that could deliver those um, in different ways for different people. Um, we then coupled it with um, stress sensors uh, using mostly, you know, heartbeat information, uh, so heart rate information and skin conductance, an old classic in psychology, if, uh, if you're familiar, which is an, an indicator of stress. It's, it's really sort of like the electrical conductivity of your skin. Um, but that's a great indicator of stressful sort of like uh, a stressful state, stressful experiences. And so we use that sort of like time series data to, um, to adjust the simulation on the fly. Wow, yeah, that's really cool. And I can only imagine that these days you can use VR and and better machine learning perhaps to really make it even more powerful, I would presume. Absolutely. Uh, but people were using VR even back then, but obviously it's, it's much better than you, what you can, you can do today. The technology has progressed a lot. Um, I haven't done work in this direction since, uh, but it was really interesting to be part of it. And it was, it was exciting to build, the, you know, to combine the game development and the um, psychological and psychometric aspects in that work. Yeah, I can totally see that. And then uh, I think the other branch of your research, I just noticed when looking at your PhD summary and some of your publications is uh, you've worked on figuring out play styles and personas from empirical data and specifications and uh, oftentimes for automating testing of games, you know, finding if, if they work or not. So how did you get into that and, you know, what is the high level overview? Yeah, yeah. So, so that that work also, and this is sort of like obviously very foundational for what we do in model AI even today. Um, but you know, the, the the AI and the psychological part of this came from again these ideas of like, what is it even like? If we have access to what people do in certain circumstances and maybe in really observable environments, like, for instance, video games or simulations, how well can we actually predict what people are going to do under different um, under different situations? Um, and I just found that intrinsically interesting. Uh, but also, you know, by, you know, by virtue of also being a game developer at the same time, I had a good understanding, I, I guess, not only of like how this could be implemented, but also, you know, as a game developer, when you start thinking, okay, if I can predict what somebody would do next in my game, or if I could build an AI that actually, you know, an AI agent, an AI player 
but actually represents my players. What would be uh, the use cases for that be when you start thinking about it, right? And obviously, everybody, you know, you know, immediately say, okay, if I'm building a multiplayer game, you know, I want to have the best AI to play against that I can have. Uh, that's that's obvious, right? Um, but there are perhaps other use cases where having a large amount of different kinds of players available to test your game or to play your game, I guess. Uh, um, can be valuable in different ways, right? And so if we work back from like the situation where you have, you know, an actual player that you can play against, but if we walk that back a bit in terms of complexity and in terms of use case, um, it could also be useful if you're trying to figure out, is my game, you know, how do, how do the dynamics of my game work? Um, can I balance my game using this information? If I know what people are going to do in every step of way, can I run them through my levels and use it to tweak different values to make the game more interesting or exciting? Or if we walk that back even further, well, okay, well, if I have a ton of players that I can boot up in my game anytime, maybe even doing different kinds of behaviors based on uh, on what I've observed before, well, maybe that could uh, that could really help me just test the game and make sure that it works in different ways. Um, and so, you know, over time, I, I spent, and this was what a lot of my PhD work was about, um, I spent a bunch of time trying to figure out what the, what, quote unquote, the best or the most interesting or the most widely applicable thing you could do uh, with, with this kind of like virtual gameplay was. And eventually sort of like landed on testing and evaluation. Um, because it's it's something where even if you don't have something that's entirely designed or tuned to the individual game, it's something that can have a big impact on the on the game's development process. Um, because you you can never tame, test games enough, I would say, and I, I say that as a person who once had a game crash on national live TV because it wasn't tested <laughs> enough. <laughs> it happens. So it was, hard. Yeah. <laughs> There's original trauma there. <laughs> but, but just can relate. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, precisely. Uh, but um, it was a very trivial error that just didn't show up uh, until until the game server came under load. Um, but um, but but there you go. Uh, so so that's sort of like it started out by being all about what does it mean to recreate behavior that's like somehow naturalistic inside video games, and then you know over time I got to sort of like hold in on. Well, I, I think the, one of the most interesting ways you could use this was is, is to test the content that you're building in. Yeah, totally. And uh, maybe to dive in a little deeper from my limited understand, understanding of game development, typically, you know, if you can if you can afford it, uh, you know, at the bigger companies, you actually hire people for QA, and they try and break your game, right? You want to make it crash and just test it out. Uh, and you know, when you get to debug and there's also user testing where you actually get people to try it and tell you what they like and don't like. Uh, so it sounds like in some ways you're taking care of some of the more, uh, trivial QA that, you know, you could probably just automate and not have people do the boring parts. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's, uh, that's where I ended up with the PhD work. And that's also where we've ended up with model AI, I suppose, for the testing use case. Um, you know, I, I tend to think about this kind of testing, like almost like uh, you can imagine a pyramid. Okay? And uh, at the bottom of the pyramid, there's a lot of like functional testing uh, that needs to get done, but it doesn't require necessarily a lot of like cognition to do in the sense that, you know, it's, of course, it's important work and you have to think about it as you're doing it. Um, but, you know, when you're building a 3D game, you could end up spending a lot of time just, you know, testing all the geometry, um, making sure that there are no, you know, uh, places where you can get stuck or walls or colliders that are missing, like really, really just interacting with every bit of the game. And and I think like that bottom part of the, the pyramid is the interesting place to start uh, when we're talking automation, because as you move up that pyramid, it becomes more and more a question of intent, right? Like if, if like the question of like, is my game balanced correctly? is maybe hard to answer just using an AI system because you can get some hard numbers around how the dynamics play out, but somebody still needs to make a decision in the end, right? Um, like, is this the system that we want to ship with the game or is you know, this other variant the system we want to ship with the game? Unless you make it completely adaptive, of course, to, to what players are doing, but when, when you know, somebody still needs to like determine the dynamics of adaptivity or the rewards you're looking for or the outcomes that you're optimizing for. And then as, as you move further and further up that pyramid, um, you know, the human aspect of things become increasingly important because now we're asking questions like, you know, is this game fun? Is it uh, aesthetically where we want it to be? Is it communicating the right things? And so as you, as you go further up, the value and the, um, 
um, you know, importance or the necessity of the human component becomes greater, right? So if, if you're building video games and you just don't have enough resources for testing, and I think that people never have, then, you know, as a game developer myself, and, and I think many other people would prefer to take all their, you know, excellent human cognition and taste and understanding and emotion and put that at the top of the pyramid and then automate the parts that, that sort of like live at the bottom. Yeah, exactly. And the bottom of the pyramid, as far as I know, you're not even playing the game. I've, I've heard some QA tasters say like you would think this is a dream job to play video games for a living, but it actually sucks because you get kind of over it very quickly and don't even pl- want to play games at home. So yeah, uh, it, it it is maybe different from what people would imagine in a way. And uh, yeah, speaking of your role as a game designer and uh, director of game companies, maybe we can jump back to that. I found it pretty interesting uh, looking over your LinkedIn that it seems to have been kind of a parallel track uh, that you've kept working on games while also doing research uh, for a while now. So yeah, maybe we can just go into your history with professional or indie game development. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Uh, happy to. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. I've, I've been doing the uh, those things in parallel. Um, after I I graduated from the uh, the master's program in game design, um, at that point in time, uh, you know, that's 2008. So that was a you know, it's a fantastic economic climate to graduate in. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but 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 anyway, I always like wanted to do my own projects and just wanted to build up some experience in game development. So I started this small consulting company. Uh, together with Benedict Mikkelsen, and we would do games for communication and uh, you know different kinds of applied games. So I, back back in, in the day, they were sometimes called serious games, uh, but that could be you know for for different organizations that wanted kind of like the the the, the PTSD simulation that I mentioned, right? And we had this notion uh, that it would be interesting to build games that use principles of psychology and design to communicate, really. Um, so we worked in that as um, as, as consultants, and, and and that was a really interesting uh, uh, time period as well. Because when you when you join in, when you have a customer that's asking you to communicate about some some aspect that they're interested in, you have to do a lot of groundwork and upfront work in understanding what they even you know mean when they say, "Oh, we want to communicate about this topic or that topic," and then you have to translate it into something that works in a game design perspective. So that meant that with the customer engagements we had, it often ended up being part sort of like just organizational consulting, understanding what your organization is trying to achieve, and then part game design and development, which was which was super fun. So we, we did that for, for, for a bit and uh, for some years. And then um, eventually through some network uh, that I had met, you know, through the games industry scene and through the IT university in Copenhagen that had the games program, um, I ended up also joining a couple of friends of mine, uh, Douglas Wilson and Nils Deniken, uh, and started uh, an indie game studio called Decoder Fabrique. And, you know, Decoder Fabrique is very much, uh, that's just, I mean, that's what most people would think about when you say game studio. It, it does, you know, creative, uh, expressive games. I guess we could think of it as sort of like an art house game studio. Um, where we've done, you know, game titles for PC, Linux, Mac, PlayStation, Xbox, and Switch uh, over the years. And I guess, well, depending on the different platforms and how you counted, like five or six games across the different platforms. And, and Vera's great as well, because we're at, at Duck and Cover Games. Uh, the work we did there was, was all about, um, you, you know, communicating with games and was a great opportunity to learn a bunch of that technology. At Tikuri Fabrique, it was a great place to learn to learn the industry, basically, and, and build out that industry network. Um, so, so those are kind of like two sides of my game development career, I guess. Um, Tikuri Fabrique, Fabrique is still running, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, uh, to chair the board still, and I'm still a, a, a co-owner. And, uh, and we now have, um, have our, our current CEO, Hannah Nickling, Hannah Nicklin running the studio and um, and sort of like driving forward the, the new and upcoming titles. So, uh, so still going. Yeah, I actually looked up a website and yeah, you can, there's like a whole series of games developed over the past decade and they look pretty cool. So I'll try and find the time to play them sometime. Uh, they're, yeah, indies in the sense of being a little bit more narrative oriented as far as I can tell and less action necessarily, but uh, yeah, kind of pretty interesting games. 
No, yeah, no, I just want to say, yeah, thank you. And, and we've been across a bunch of different genres. I mean, we've done games with no graphics. We've done multiplayer couch games, you know, sports games. And now at the moment, the studio is mostly focused on narrative games. So uh, keeping sort of like a wide, a wide range in terms of the kind of games that come out of it. Ah, I see. And how was the experience of trying to be, you know, have your legs in both worlds, you know, doing research in academia and AI and then doing game development kind of, I guess, alongside that? It seems like an interesting thing to try to balance in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously you've you got to do work on both sides if you want to do both things, right? That's, that's kind of like a, a, a trade-off that you have to decide if you want to make. Um, I, I think, you know, one thing was just like doing the PhD and some of the research later, um, you have a lot of open time when you're doing a PhD <laughs> and personally, depending on how you work, uh, I having some other things with some tighter deadlines and stricter production schedules might actually not be a bad idea. Uh, it's, it's just in your, in your personal life that can be a bit counterweight to like the open research time. But, I did but, start but this podcast during my PhD, yeah, so I can understand. It, there, there you go, right? There you go. You, you got to have something else where you feel like, you know, there's a delta at, like uh, on a shorter timeline, maybe. Um, and, and then the, the other side of it for me is that, you know, I, I always knew that um, the work that I wanted to do with AI would have to do with video games. And that for me also meant that I'm, I'm in that sense kind of like an applied thinker or somebody who's interested in bridging from, you know, what is possible on the research side, but also having an impact on the, um, on the practical of the industrial side. So I, I think what, what I've seen, anyway, was what's worked well for me was that uh, when I'm thinking about, you know, uh, how to approach uh, modeling a certain problem or if we're trying to develop a certain algorithm or a certain approach for doing something, well, then, you know, but what you get from also doing the games professionally is that you can immediately complete the whole train of thought all the way down to deployment and say, oh, but wait, wait a minute. Okay, this is how I would use this in Unity or this is how I would use this in whatever, right? And and to me, that's sort of like, that's that's been super helpful to me to have the two things inform, informing each other. And in, in many ways, that's, that's actually also what we're trying to do with model AI. Um, we, we understand uh, the company as sitting sort of like in a position where it bridges from like pure AI research to practical implementations and implications of that research. Um, sort of like carrying, you know, from one side to the other, which is, is an interesting practice because when you have something that works super well in the research context, when you, to certain, in a certain sense, you need to scale it to applicability or scale it to production. Often you might even have to, you know, cut a corner or change a principle, just pragmatically change something uh, that that was perfect and looked really well in the proof of concept over on the research side, right? And then you end up taking sort of like an 80% solution with some engineering on top. And that's the thing that ends up like being being the right approach when you when you need to use it, you know, practically. And so, so for me, I, th I think having a leg in both worlds, like the real benefit that, that I've gotten out of that, uh, and and the strength of that, I think, is is being able to to like think about that process, and then obviously knowing you know great people on both sides, uh, so that you can go and ask you know people on uh, in either of those contexts for for help and thoughts and what they think. <laughs> Yeah, that makes all sense. And I guess uh, now getting to your current occupation, it it is pretty cool that those paths just kind of converged at some point with model AI, where it's a company that uses AI for game development tool, uh, right? And you've had that experience of developing games, so you can relate to the needs of game developers everywhere, I assume. Uh, so how did that uh, come about? How did model AI get started? Yeah, I think, well, well, it came sort of like out of that, that, that sort of like direction of thinking that we were talking about, but it also sort of like comes out almost of the, the network of people or, you, you know, behind it, a priori. Um, so if you look at the people who are involved with model, um, it's, um, it's, uh, Benedicta Mikkelsen, whom I did duck and cover games together with this, with, um, then it's uh, it's Lars Henriksen, who's a part of the game development scene in, in Copenhagen. Uh, I actually know Lars because Benedict and I, we rented a desk from him, him once <laughs> at a co-working space for game developers he was running. Um, and uh, and then Julian Jurgis and Sebastian, whom we all met through the IT University of Copenhagen. 
So in many ways, you know, the background of Model AI is that we're this like strange Katamari of game developers and machine learning game AI researchers uh, that got to like rolled up over like a decade. Um, and then in, in, 20, in 2018, we sort of like really went live with the company. But I think a lot of it for us came into focus in 2016. Um, I was I was living in New York City at the time, and I was working in Julian runs a research lab at New York University, um, and I was like running that with him for about a year as a as a postdoctoral researcher, and we were sitting around and we were seeing you know all the stuff that was coming through with AlphaGo and AlphaZero, and uh, I can't remember exactly when the OpenAI five stuff happened, whatever. But but the deep learning was also really coming through. I mean, obviously that has been that had been coming for a bunch of years before. But it, you, you know, suddenly you were seeing like the GPU acceleration really have an impact on the kind of models you could do and the kind of work you do with machine learning. So I would say, you know, around the end of 2016, we were sort of looking at that together seriously. Um, and we sat down at some point, uh, a few of us, uh, I actually think we had a, we had a dinner at a, at a restaurant in New York City, Julian and I, and we were having a look at that and we said, you know, okay, if we think now it's kind of like all the pieces are in place, like the games industry seems to be interested in this kind of tech, the, you know, work on the algorithm and modeling side and the stuff in terms of the engineering and the scalability side, like all of this seems to be coming into place. So if we, if we actually wanted to get serious about taking this game AI research and bring it to game developers, we should probably start doing it now. And, and so we, we spent a bunch of time thinking about that through 2017. And then, yeah, as I mentioned, we got going in, in 2018. Um, but it is sort of like this convergence of the work that all of these people have been doing for a bunch of years that, that led into the company starting. Yeah, and I guess it's been going since 2018. So as companies go, you know, you're not a giant, but you are, you know, have some customers and are, you know, actively helping game developers make games, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, we've we've done that from day one, actually. Um, so yeah, there are we're like 33 people across the company now. Um but when we got, got started, just a few of us, um, the first thing we actually did was to do some consulting work with uh, game developers. Uh, so, you know, often when you think startup, oh, you got to do, you know, obviously you want to do a product and you want to ship that. You want to, you know, figure out a way of doing that scalably. But in 2017, before, before we took funding, we found a few um, a few game studios who were interested enough in this and willing to take a bet on the kind of work that we were doing. Uh, but we just did some consulting projects, testing out that all of these ideas that we talked about earlier. You know, can we use games for testing and uh, AI for testing and balancing and all that? You know, it's it's great, but we have the idea. Would other people agree? And so we started out doing that, and then over the course of like a year or two. Uh, after having brought a bunch of these ideas to, to the industry and trying things out, uh, that's when we really started building the product that we're offering today, which is, which is this AI engine. But it, but we sort of like came at it from the first we got to learn by working with some people in the industry. And then we'll take what we learn and build up the product underneath from that and out from that. Um, so you have to, at this point, we have a range of customers in the games industry that we're working with. And most of our engagements and work are centered around leveraging the AI engine for, uh, for QA testing, uh, at the moment. And then, you know, once, once upon, you know, sometimes we get a chance to work on some, you know, slightly more esoteric topics with some of the game studios if they're interested in trying some things out or working, I would say, on some of the features that we have, you know, maybe not on the roadmap right now. Uh, like we're, that we're not working on from the roadmap right now, but we have it on the roadmap for two years down the line, and we can do some experiments in that with some of the um, some of the uh, some of the actors in the industry. Yeah, and I'm sure there's you know a ton of things you can't do. It doesn't feel like a very explored space of how to integrate video games, and I'm sure we'll get to kind of what is the status of it, which uh, you'll be given a talk about. But before that, I'm curious, uh, you know, again, browsing for your Google Scholar, you've had papers uh, such as automated playtesting with procedural personas through Monte Carlo's research and evolved heuristics. So to what extent did you early on, you know, did you take and hack these ideas to do something simpler that actually worked in practice or did your research really transfer over uh, to a larger extent, I suppose? 
So, so one of the first customer engagements we did uh, implemented Monte Carlo tree search at runtime in a two versus two eight character card battling game. Uh, so we've been fortunate, like like so precisely like some of that work that came out of the academic um, work we did, made it over to some of our early engagements. Um, that, that being said, uh, for the work that we do at the moment, uh, you know, I, I did my PhD before a lot of the, the deep learning stuff came through, uh, sort of like in earnest. Um, tree search is great in games for, for many purposes, but I would actually say that, but right at this point in time, we're using, you know, for, for most of the work and for the product, we're using other algorithms. Um, so, so we're using uh, quality diversity exploration algorithms for a lot of QA bot work. And when we do bots that actually play games, uh, we use a variety of methods. And that could be anything from, you know, uh, dynamic scripting all the way up to imitation learning or reinforcement learning. Um, and, and what you sort of like see over time is that as you get productized for the different use cases, then you sort of like start... You know, you start, you have this whole gallery of different methods that you could use for different problems. And then by working with it in practice, you start seeing which of those algorithms are both efficacious or effective for solving different problems and pretty generally applicable. And then that ends up being the one that you go with. So, Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, and that brings us to the present day, I suppose, where... Obviously, we've had a pretty exciting year in AI, right? We've had ChatGPT and generative AI just kind of explode, uh, even to some extent in more embodied settings. So in robotics, uh, these high-level things do have some impact. And in RL with agents, which is you know fundamentally what video games have, that also is starting to kind of come through. So yeah, what has been your general sort of thought process taking all of this AI progress in? It's been very rapid and how it would uh, interact with your work and model and maybe games in a broader sense. It's it's been super interesting to see it come through, and uh, and it's uh, you know I think everyone would say suddenly a lot of this has been going you know faster than um, than anyone would have imagined. Uh, we, so we don't do a ton of content generation, uh, or, or you know you know not text generation or image generation or or anything like that. So so that part of like that whole revolution has been sort of like interesting to observe, and also kind of like parallel or you know, not really related to, to what we do in the company. For me, I'm sort of like much more interested in looking at what you can do with large models um, inside simulations for driving behavior, because obviously that's what our AI engine does. Um, and, you know, for our company and looking at our strategy, one of the things we'd like to do long-term is, you know, by working with our QA customers and the data that that generates, when you install our QA product, um, obviously we get the ability to drive behavior inside of your game. That's how we do the testing. We also get the ability to observe states inside of the game uh, because that's what we need to, in order to report on the testing. Um, but that also enables us to you know, later collect data from teams uh, inside of game studios or players outside of game studios and crucially data at a resolution that it starts becoming relevant for training you know, larger models for driving behavior inside of games. So, so that's, that's mostly what it means for us in, um, in, in, in model. And that's something that we've already you know, we've been looking at, at that and moving toward that for a few years. And we're, we're not at the point yet where we can offer something general for the, for the industry. But, but what we're hoping to do is have, um, you know, larger models that are relevant for certain kinds of games. Um, so I think, you know, having one singular model that works like super well to the standard that you'd be um, content with it as a, a game developer or a creative director on a game, uh, having one model that would work across all the different kinds of games that game developers make, I'm actually not sure if it's like super realistic, like at least in the short to medium term. Because if you think about the kind of creativity that goes into games, it's like everything from strategy games to Minecraft to shooter games, and you know, it's dating simulators, you know, what have you. It's like um, basically a GI at that point, <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 precisely, right? So, so I think, but what I think is realistic is that you could do larger models for instance, you know, for all the first-person shooter games or for all the racing games or if we're looking at, you know, for all the narrative games, right? And so that's, that's, that's the direction that we're interested in going in um, from model AI. But do, doing, doing this kind of work, I mean, the only thing uh, that's, that's, you know, characteristics of, of character, you know, working in games, you don't get a ton of data out there on the internet 
just for free that you could uh, that you could scrape and use notwithstanding whether you want to do that or not or that's the right thing to do but just like from a technical perspective right and we can't download game replays from across the internet and use that to train a large model we need to get that data first yeah um, you can watch so that's, streams that's, but that's not exactly useful data right <laughs> uh, yeah well it's useful if you do something like uh, you know um video pre-training and all that stuff but all mm, the methods yeah. that seem to have been really successful for game playing still need like good old-fashioned raw high resolution state uh, state action pairs basically to get going right mm-hmm. um yep. so 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 our, our long-term vision is to um is to to collect enough of that kind of data working with the games industry with our customers it's, it's not something that we keep secret or wouldn't tell people um and then start training you know models for different kinds of games it's it, and it's kind of in our name right model ai that's that's where it comes from um but um but and I think at the point where you get to that, you know, what that would mean for a lot of game developers is that as you're building, well, let's say you're building, I don't know, uh, a new first-person shooter game, we could have a model that's good enough that you could like pull it off the shelf into your game, and then later you could then tune it to your particular gameplay, right? And I think I think that's kind of like interesting to the whole games industry, and and hopefully uh, the industry won't be adverse to sharing data in that way through vendors or third-party technology providers like us. Because at the end of the day, it, I, I, I think of it as sort of like, uh, you know, the rising tide lifting all ships. It's it's something that every game developer could benefit from if they if they work in a genre that's supported by this kind of tech. Mm. Yeah, and to get a bit more geeky and into technical details, it sounds like, yeah, you need state action pairs, so you need sort of your typical RL or imitation learning agent. Uh, and we've seen a lot of work on that in the past decade with RL. Kind of games have been one of the standard uh, benchmarks starting with Atari. And more recently, we've seen DeepMind, for instance, go into this whole like game arena with human timescale adaptation, where you're trying to go from visual inputs to really you know, various 3D uh, movement and object interaction. So, you know, at a big picture kind of perspective, are you working to try and get the sort of pixel level perception into action of agents in, in these kinds of environments? It's it's part of the sort of like portfolio of solutions that we're looking at, and we're actually on some work we're doing right now. We're working actively with pixel level data. Um, there are some concerns that you have to think about there as well, I think, and a lot of it has to do with like scaling to production. So it's more like the engineering side of things, um, and you have to think about your target audience as well. And and so like very pragmatically, if you're doing uh, I don't know again, you're a video game developer building a game, and you would like to have AI agents for um, filling seats and making sure there's always somebody to play against in your game, right? If I need to, like, if we're using a visual method to drive that interaction, we need to do a render for every virtual player that you have. And that is not free. And so what you start, what you need to start thinking about then is like, can we scale it in a cost effective way out to production? Or would we be better off figuring out a way, you know, maybe starting the training using, um, using things like pixel-based methods, but then actually trying to distill out to, you know, something that's based on sensors that's maybe not 100% as good, but almost as good. Or do you want to try and be smart from the engineering perspective and only render frames uh, sort of like when you need it for the decision-making and then not doing it when you don't need it? Or do you, um, depending on, you know, how much, you know, engineering you want to do for a specific title, do you want to break it out into different uh, models that control different kind parts of a behavior and then make it cheaper that way, right? And and when you look at it from a production perspective and from the needs of the game studios, you just always, you're always on the scale where we're going from, you know, pure behavior, behavior driven purely from pixels and um, and large models that do that then down to sort of like okay what if we reduce like a lot of like what if we try to reduce the amount of information we're collecting the amount of parameters we have by getting more specific to the individual problem and and i think that's that's just for games so that's one of the big um questions that needs to be answered as this kind of tech starts scaling into production for games uh, because again you know open ai5 or the some of this you know the starcraft uh work super impressive it's also completely infeasible from a commercial perspective to use that for a multiplayer game um and of course you can you can roll the same considerations back into the balancing and the testing um it's just like for some of those applications you would be satisfied with a less human-like player model i guess 
Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. I actually recall, I believe, with the OpenAI Dota research that famously, you know, got to the level of top tier competitors, they didn't use pixels, at least not initially. They had the big, big vector of all the numbers and parameters. So that really speaks to that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, now I think most recently in the past year, we've seen more and more research in Minecraft with some of these, yeah, getting to a level of transformers and decision transformers and getting agents that can get to diamond and being able to generate various environments. So, you know, assuming you may still keep one eye on, on the research part of AI, maybe, yeah, do you have any thoughts specifically about the movement towards creating testing environments and training environments and things like Minecraft and and their progress in having intelligent agents uh, lately? For the word, well, that might be the part where I'm a, <laughs> you know, I'm a little more personally, a little more removed from from the research side of things. Julian would be a great person to to talk to here, um, mm. but um, but but you know, I I still think there's progress to be made in the kind of behavior that you can see in those kinds of uh, environments and there's still stuff to be learned. It's really impressive, the kind of behaviors, for, you know, crafting, operating GUIs, uh, doing, you know, really complex chain behavior in, in things like Minecraft that we've been seeing recently. Um, but I think there would, like, like if you think about, well, maybe my comment on that would be that if you think about that work, you're still sort of like operating at a task level, right? It's still kind of like, you know, um, it's still, I wouldn't say robotic, right? But but you you know you set up certain you're, goals and you say like this is you're this, not so much playing the game, is, yeah. Precisely, yeah. That's what I was going for. Like you you still like mo- intrinsic motivation and intent and those kind of things are still like really open topics, right? As is experience. So I I think a lot of that will you know thinking about it from the game side of things and and you know that's that's sort of like where I've been doing all my research for years is is I would still say you know. Going back to this idea of the, you know, you mentioned the procedural personas previously, which is like this. I, this is part of my research work for my PhD as well, which was this idea of, well, can we represent different player types and their motivations and then have them play the games in different ways? I think that, that is something I personally would be really interested in seeing, right? So if you start making, like having a, a driving motivational model of why, why am I doing this? What kind of, kind of player am I? Actually subdividing the behavior of the agents into being representative of different kinds of people. And and then you can map that back to, you know, if are these needs and these motivations being satisfied, we might even be able to infer or predict something about the experience that this kind of person would have. And that sort of like gets you closer to having maybe an automated understanding of what makes a given experience, you know, even fun or rewarding or interesting or not. Right? So I think there's, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of interesting work to come through there. And that's ultimately the hard part, <laughs> I would imagine, in game development. Um, oh, and- oh, 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 yeah. In, in AI for games, and well, more in AI for games, I guess, you often say we, we don't say the F word because we nobody's figured out how to measure funding. <laughs> so so, so we, we don't talk about it. <laughs> um, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, so zooming out uh, from just AI, academia, and so on, uh, now you're you know, on the industry side and, and working with game developers. So broadly speaking, we've seen, you know, this huge progress in AI and it has especially a large impact on creative professionals, right? When in all industries, really film, visual arts, uh, writing, voice acting, it's, it's hard to think of a creative industry that isn't being affected in some way by all this new technology. So what would be your perspective on how AI will be impacting game developers, productivity, workflow, creativity, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's there's a lot of change that I guess has already happened, like over the, the, the last few months and um, and faster than, than, than I guess I would have anticipated, and, and that's really interesting to see. Uh, and I think I think a lot more change is coming, and so it just seems realistically that I I think the impact of generative AI and across all those cases you mentioned, right? Uh, concept art, asset generation. It seems like there's 
going to be practical solutions for 3D asset generation soon, voice skins, text-to-speech, text generation, all of, it, all of that stuff, right? Content in, at certain levels of refinement is becoming very cheap to produce. Um, and there's, there's a whole second discussion, again, an ethical discussion about how did that become possible? Where did, like, was source... Where did that source material come from, and all those things, right? But if if we park that for a little bit and just say this this is happening right now, what does it mean? Um, my first thing is, I would say I think it would be disingenuous for anyone who works in AI to say that it isn't gonna. Maybe it will destroy. Maybe it will change um, a range of jobs that exist right now that people used to do. I mean, in the same way that uh, that with what we're doing at, at Model AI, we aim to change how QA testing works, right? And so resources and time and, as a consequence, money and that impacts even livelihoods will move around as, as a consequence of that, right? And so I'm, I'm sure that for the people who are affected by that, that is not, you know, at the individual level, that's not a very uh, positive or desirable development. And that's that's something that, that I, you know, I, I also have a leg in the creative side of things and, and had before, right? I completely understand. Um so, so I think there will be some some consequences of that, and not all of them will be good at that level. On the other hand, if you look at the at the impact on the industry as such, and you know these kinds of like automation procedures that are becoming possible, whether it's for testing or for getting content, uh, creating content, and everything, um, I think if you look at the industry at a whole, um, I would personally guess that it's going to be a net positive. And the reason that I say, I think it will lead to growth, not just in terms of like how much money the industry is making, the games industry, or, or like the profits for shareholders, but also at the end of the day, in terms of like how much content that gets made, how good it is, um, like the final product, and how many people work in the games industry even. And, and my reasoning around that is that when you look at other kinds of automation technology that has come through in the past, any industry that has been suddenly augmented in sort of like key procedures and core parts of the industry um, that have gotten access to technology that increases productivity has usually seen growth as a consequence. Um, and a, a very simple, simple sort of like example around that is, um, you know, the advent of, uh, of the uh, digital spreadsheet. When that came out with Visicalc, um, before you had like computer spreadsheets, you would do most of the computation and calculation when you were doing accounting, when you were doing financial simulation, all of that would have to be done by hand, right? And so spreadsheets came out and they, or like with, you know, large computers later and stuff like that, right? But, but at the end of the day, when spreadsheets came out, that became available to anyone who could afford a, a computer, basically a Mac, uh, I guess at that time, if I recall correctly, right? And and so suddenly you have this democratization of computation, like very specifically uh, adding numbers together in cells, uh, in columns and rows. And obviously, if you were working as, you know, one of those few providers like that were able to offer that service to people before, this would be disconcerting, right? Because now, like, people can just do it at home. Um, I think there was some, you know, you know, you can imagine that the accounting industry would shrink because now one person could do much more work, like, in a shorter amount of time. But actually, the opposite happened. So, so what ended up being the consequence there was that once you started having financial modeling analysis, um, very easy to update models available on demand and widely, people started consuming that kind of work much more widely as well. Uh, because it just turns out, like if you can run financial simulations on your business and you can run a thousand instead of two when you're trying to make a decision or if you can do it every day and all those things, that's hugely valuable to use a business, right? Um, and I think we've seen that pattern again and again across industries. And so the, the question, of course, is like, why, why would that also be true for the games industry? But I think, you know, you can, you can think about when, when this kind of technology becomes more widely available, more accepted, hopefully like any ethical, like, or the existing ethical issues get figured out, then more people will be able to make more game content with less effort and hopefully focusing more on the creative ideas and sort of like the all the things that they'd want to be able to do if they just had the resources for it, right? So my hope for the games industry would be that this leads to more people having more fulfilling work in the games industry and being able to explore a wider range of game ideas and bringing them to market. And, and I, I don't think that's wholly unrealistic. And I don't see the humans 
you know, us <laughs> the humans, but, but I don't see us sort of like, you know, being removed from that process. I, I just see, again, if we talk about this pyramid, I see the human decision-making and the human contribution, contribution moving further up and eventually making the industry larger as a consequence. Because again, if, if a game is cheaper to make, if it's, uh, if it's easier for you to, um, to get the content out of the door, well, then probably you can also do more niche content, right? You would be able to target a smaller group of people or you'd make, you you, you know, I, I hope we'd see more variation and more creative ideas as a consequence as these like technical barriers and production barriers fall away in different parts of the, of the industry. And Absolutely. Sorry, long rant. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's it's a complicated topic, and I think that was a very, you know, uh, well thought out response. And I want to add a little bit. I think to me, it's interesting to think about how, you know, AI aside, for the last maybe twenty years, we've seen a trend of in game development and in music and in photography and in all sorts of ways of technology making it easier to enter a given creative space and to distribute your work and to actually become, for instance, an indie game developer. In the past decade, there's been a real boom due to things like Unity, free software for game development, free resources to learn game development, uh, distribution platforms like Steam and other ones, right? we have seen a ton more games being made that are weirder and more different and for different audiences. So I do feel like this thesis that we'll get more games if we make game development easier in some sense kind of has borne out already. And AI is just the latest step where it'll be even easier to kind of afford to live as an artist, at least in game development, which is not easy. I would imagine you already know from personal experience yeah it, it isn't easy absolutely being being an artist like doing it, especially as an indie game developer and i think i think one thing that the content like like let's say it becomes easier or cheaper to make content but it doesn't solve is still sort of like access to the market a way of reaching your customers and if you look at like the way that the games industry is structured in terms terms of earnings, I don't know if it's like an, uh, a twenty eighty rule or whatever, right? But the vast majority of the revenue is generated by a small amount of titles. Um, so I think I think that's a problem. But more content or more access doesn't necessarily solve. And then you got to break through and reach for people who uh, who who want to like experience that content that you're making, right? So that is, but but that's perhaps not as much down to the means of um, the means of production. I would almost say, it, like, 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 but down to the the content generation technology you're using, whether you're doing it by hand or automatically, it's a lot more about market dynamics and how the market is structured and stuff like that. In my mind. <laughs> Yeah, I was uh, thinking more in the sense of it costs less just to yeah. develop. So you may not need to earn quite as much, but of course, there's still the industry and the whole other aspect of it that's not related to development per se. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Two, two, two different sides of uh, the coin, I guess. And, and, and the other, so the other thing, but you, if, if you want, if we wanted to challenge, like, I, I don't want to just like sit around saying, oh, this is a fantastic industry, right? The other thing that would be interesting, and, and, and I think we still need to see how that bears out. Um, but if everybody are, is using the same models uh, to generate the content that we're using, it would be such a shame if that resulted in some sort of like convergence on the, on the average in terms of the kind of output that comes out in terms of stuff and in terms of like the flavor and everything, right? But again, I think it depends on where you apply that content in the production process. Is it inspirational? Is it something you start from, right? So you have to find the right place to get that unique human um, addition to whatever the technology gave you initially into, into the process. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see how you know, as these tools mature for game development, which is a little more complicated, we've seen in, for instance, short uh, fiction, right? A couple of months ago, Clark's World, a science fiction short story magazine had to close submissions because they've had, you know, we're just being yeah. spammed by low effort, you know, just crappy generic titles from people. Um, just not caring so much and it is feasible that we'll get a lot of this generic games that people make and don't really have a passion for it but hopefully yeah people will also ultimately make the decision to 
use these tools, which is ultimately what they are, to make interesting things that they couldn't have done otherwise. I, I agree. I agree. And, and, you know, I think it's going to be an adjustment period. And uh, as you're saying, like cheap, crappy games or autogen, like, you know, fully AI generated music with no sort of like creative spark in it and stuff like that. I, th- I think, you know, humans are smart enough that we'll learn how to filter that out and how to uh, like that. That is a short lived period where you're going to have this problem. I hope right? and then we'll, we'll figure out how to, how to weed comb that out. If, if we don't, then we're in trouble. So I'm sure that human ingenuity will, will, will come through there. Right. But. Yeah. And I always go back to thinking about, I forget what it's called, but there's a rule that says kind of, 90% of everything is crappy as is yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so AI will maybe switch that to like 99% of things are crappy and 1% is actually interesting and, and, you know, made with passion and actually inspiration. But uh, yeah, I guess it, it's good to be balanced uh, on, on these things. And I guess to, follow up and, and maybe get to the last topic uh, on the ethics of generative AI. So you've mentioned it a little bit and ethics comes with regards to economy. Are there any other aspects or dimensions of using generative AI in game development that you know merit some thinking about ethics? For, for me, it's um, it, there's this sort of like open question around the consent of the people who have created like the base training sets that, that go into the large models, right? Um, and I would say that, you, you know, my personal baseline thinking there is that, you know, you need to have the rights to use it for this purpose. I think legislation is <laughs> probably lagging quite a bit here, right? But but it's it sort of like comes down to like what's what's the mental model that we use on these like generative models, right? Is a generative is a generative model like an agent that just goes up out and observes something in the world and now it's it's learned something about that and for that reason it can generate a new example. That's like a human going out and looking for inspiration, getting a bunch of like impressions, and then based off of that, we can do something new. Maybe that would, I'm, I'm not neither a lawyer nor an ethicist, so, you know, uh, take it with a grain of salt. But maybe that would motivate that it would be okay to, uh, to select train on publicly available data because it's kind of like the, the, the same SV model just showing up and, uh, and experiencing stuff and then outputting it, right? But I think there's a, a building amount of evidence that that is exactly not what is being, what is happening. The, what, what actually happens is that models just shows up and it ingests the data, right? Because that's, that's how, that's how a computer really works. It's not a perceiving entity. So, so what you do is when you go and copy somebody else's data, and you embed it into your model. And as we've seen, uh, it's becoming, uh, you know, more and more clear that, it, you know, depending on how you, you structure your work, but at least for, for, for a good range of models, you can actually recover some of the training data almost, you know, you know um, to, to, to the extent where you can pull out individual examples, right? And I, I, I think for, for that use, uh, I think we're kind of like in the darker part of the gray area, perhaps, uh, but might also be too late to do anything about it. So like from pragmatic view, I, I think um, regulation of these kinds of things will need to come from sort of like the governmental level. Uh, you know, it's, you can't expect the, the industry to uh, realistically like govern this. And I think there are a lot of like open answers that the sort of like both the democratic and legislative systems are still lagging on that will need to come from there. And then we'll need to see what that means as a consequence. Because on one, on one hand, you know, obviously you don't want to, this fantastic technology, um, it's really impressive that it's possible, but you got to think about where the, the data that you're using comes from. Um, the second part for the for the work that we do at Model, uh, maybe sort of like pulling it in there, and and that's that's um, we're sort of like both cursed and blessed, as I mentioned, with the fact that we can't just go, you know, uh, and, and get some data out there. So so from our individual, like from our perspective, we um, we we of course make sure. Uh, that people understand where the, the data that we're providing is going and what it's going to be used for and make sure that's okay, both with developers and players. Um, and, and again, it's, to me, it sort of like comes down to consent and then everything kind of like flows from there. Um, are you okay with your work being part of this, um, being, being part of this, um, this model or not? Yeah, I'm sure game players would maybe find it interesting that their gameplay experience will, you know, lead to an AI that will model how people play the games. Uh, maybe that's not quite as thorny as, 
you know, looking at your art and being able to look at your art, but still you need it's, consent. It's, it's less contentious. And I think it becomes more interesting when you start as the closer you go to the individual, the, like from the behavioral point of view, the more interesting this gets, right? There's an old story floating around out there from them. So, you know, there's a Microsoft game called, um, uh, Horizon Motorsport or Forza Horizon, right? And and they have this concept of a drive of a drive avatar, which is actually an, an agent that will take your play trace and then it will play like you. And you can send it on, you know, out racing when you're not playing and stuff like that. When you're not around, if I want to play with you and you're not online, I'll play your ghost, like your drive avatar. Uh, then it starts becoming kind of personal. And, and so there's this new story out there from quite a few years in versions back where they have this example of um, a man who used to play the game with his father. And when his father went ahead and died, uh, which was quite sad, of course, but what he used to be, um, but, but they were playing this game together. And then he would keep playing his father's drive avatar as sort of like a living memory or like a, you know, a behavioral memory or a, a photograph uh, in the same vein, right? And, and that whole thing just lives uh, on a server somewhere with, with Microsoft or with Xbox, I suppose. And that's also like an interesting, like ethical consequence of this kind of technology that we can, we can start leaving behavioral impressions of ourselves in, in various contexts. Oh yeah. And as you get into some of the more crazy things of having, you know, chatbot driven NPCs and, and truly procedural generation with machine learning, which we didn't get into so much, but that was also an aspect of your work and research. Procedural generation of uh, content is probably gonna go crazy soon. It seems like. Yeah, I think a lot of like the underpinnings are starting to get there again in terms of like some of these generative models. Um, and I think hopefully that can address some of the domain specificity issues that I think a lot of PCG, at least on the research side, has tended to run into, right? That you can learn to generate, you know, content for a very narrow case. And that's actually what, also what you've seen in industry. Like PCG in industry has been successful for very narrow cases. Like, and I mean narrow in either, you know, trees. Okay? There are fantastic tools out there for generating trees, right? Or in terms of like doing levels for one particular game, we're doing the PCGs like basically part of the game design. But hopefully, you know, um, I, I, I think that, that, uh, that generative AI could is probably going to drive a lot of like developments and having more generalizable solutions for sure. Hmm. Well, yeah, I think we covered quite a bit of this large topic and uh, we will close out as we usually do by kind of forgetting about your career and job and just asking a bit about you as a human being. Uh, what are some of your hobbies? Obviously, video games is one of them. So maybe what are some games you've been playing recently and, and really like? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, video games. Is it is it work or is it hobby? Nobody knows anymore. I'm playing. Uh, I'm so right before this podcast because uh, today's is uh, is a holiday in Denmark, so so I haven't been been doing that much today. Um, so I was playing Midnight Suns from Firaxis, and uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Firaxis games. I love those kind of strategy games. Um, Indie or AAA doesn't matter. I'm I'm having a go at Elden Ring. It's not going super well, so I put that on pause. It's it's too much. It's too much work right now. So I just play Midnight Suns. Um, but I I cut very widely across different kind of genres. Um, so and you know when I love to read uh, as well, uh, cook and uh, and I have um, you know a, a good amount of friends and family that I love to spend time with as well. Um, but yeah, you know how it is when you're when you're doing a startup. It's uh, it's also to a certain extent limited how much time you have for doing other things. So. Yeah, do you have uh, consoles in your office and game nights with model uh, coworkers? We we do sometimes, uh, probably not as often as as, uh, as we should. But yeah, we we have stuff like that in the office, and I think most of the people in the company play games of various sorts at various times. But we also try and go and do out and uh, and do things that are are not directly related to video games as well because we think that's important mm. too um yeah i think there was a mini golf a mini golf outing a few weeks back coming out of the office so we're actually we're, we're hybrid remote which also means that no we try and sort of like figure out you can do something locally you can do something online and then we try and get everybody together at least twice a year uh, to spend to spend a week together so okay yeah so that was cool to hear and it, yeah thank you so much it's been really interesting hearing about your whole career and your perspective on this current moment which is so dynamic and, and fast moving 
once again, this is the Gradient Podcast. Check out our associate magazine over at thegradient.pub. If you enjoyed this interview, please support it by sharing this podcast with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing it. We would appreciate it. And be sure to tune in to our future episodes.